at this point in the service, children kindergarten through second grade are welcome to primary church, I believe. Yeah? Yeah, okay. Um, For the rest of you, uh, we're looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 38 today. If you have a Bible, you can follow along there, or you can find the text in your order of worship, or you can use your phone or any other approved device. And so I say to you, hear the word of God. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that where we are sleepy, you would wake us up. Father, I also pray that you would come by your spirit and that you would, um, you would bring great conviction of sin. And in like manner, I pray that you bring even greater conviction of grace and mercy and what was done at the cross. Father, I pray for myself that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things, amen and amen. You know, when I went to college at Florida State, which is a pretty safe place to have gone to Florida State, and no one really cares, to be honest with you. But I remember being in an apartment complex at Florida State, and there was one person whose car bothered me like crazy because it was, it was like a Pinto, but the whole back of the car was completely covered with bumper stickers. Have you ever seen those things? And they were all sort of like coexist or, you know, visualize world peace or, you know, Darwin fish and things like that. And I always, I had the, my, one of my fantasies was to go buy a bumper sticker that said, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, and just sneak it in there and see if they notice. So I'm always fascinated with what people would put on their cars, you know, to, 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 to identify themselves. And so I ask you this, have you ever seen this bumper sticker? It's one of my favorite. It's completely theologically bogus, but it makes me laugh every time I see it. Jesus is coming. Look busy. Now, it makes me laugh because it's funny. It's not right, but isn't that sort of the way we all approach Jesus, isn't it? In other words, if you knew Jesus was coming back like right now, what would you do? Look busy, doing something. But it leads to a question of, of motivation, ultimately, in other words, if, if you knew Jesus was going to come back and you were waiting for him, what would, what would motivate you to do the right thing, to do the wrong thing? In other words, let me ask it this way. What, what motivates you or what most motivates you, generally speaking, is it a fear of failure or a fear of punishment or is it a promise of reward? Generally speaking, when you think, what, what motivates me? Is it, is it either fearing punishment or failure, or is it promise of reward? Or many of you, you know that I've told you before, it's no secret that when I was a kid, I got spanked almost every day of my life that I can remember. And I, and I think I deserved it, probably. But when you get punished that much, you sort of learn how to cope. 
And it really doesn't motivate you. In fact, you know, you sort of master the like cry real hard and sob and things like that. And the parents feel like they got it out of their system to punish you and everyone's good to go. But it didn't really affect my motivation. What motivates me is reward. If it's going to be one or the other, you know, there's a promise. There's some carrot on the end of the stick that I can shoot for. That's how most of us approach life. Right, that we, we, we're motivated by fear or motivated by uh, a hope of reward. What's great about today's text is Jesus is going to give a third way, a different way. And it's sort of a cycle breaker. Jesus does talk about being motivated by fear, and he does talk about being motivated by reward. But I think there's something at the core of that that actually is over and above all of that, that actually, if you really get it, I think will change your life. You know, I don't talk like that very often, but I honestly believe that. In fact, so if you remember, we started in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus was addressing, uh, he was confronting uh, Pharisees, and that led him in Luke chapter 12 to begin talking to his disciples about not being like the Pharisees, and he's talked to them about the danger of persecution. In other words, if, you're, if it becomes dangerous for you, you need to still hang in there and acknowledge me before men, and I'll acknowledge you. But then remember, someone asked a question about money, and Jesus pivoted, and he began talking about money and stewardship. And he basically said, don't be greedy on one hand. And on the other hand, don't worry about your possessions. That's what we looked at last week. He said, because your, your possessions can be just as dangerous to your faith as persecution can, because you can make them your gods. And so last week, we ended up the text with, with Jesus saying, not only don't worry about your, your possessions and your finances, but you ought to be radically generous with them. And remember the, the last thing he said, he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, where no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then immediately after that, he starts talking about the passage that I, I read to you. Be ready. And is, it, is he changing topics? And the answer is absolutely not. In fact, when I started studying this week, I was going to, I originally intended to preach verse 35 all the way to verse 48 because I thought oh this is just about the second coming of Jesus and then when I started examining the first three verses I realized that the first the, the verses we're going to look at today there's literally nothing like it in all the rest of the Bible and nothing like it in all of ancient literature it is completely and utterly unique and the more that I start diving into it I thought this is actually I think the key to the whole passage because Jesus, next, next two weeks, Jesus gets back to this issue of stewardship, where he literally talks about stewardship. What motivates us toward stewardship? What motivates us to have our treasure in heaven rather than to have our treasure on earth? What motivates us not to be greedy? Is it just fear? Or is it promise of reward? I think it's something else. It's a third way that Jesus is going to talk to us about today, I think. And that third way is grace. It's grace. We're going to look at uh, two things. I apologize. This is a short passage. I couldn't squeak out three points for you. People at the first service forgave me for that. I hope you will as well. Uh, we only have two points today. It's a short passage, but they're longer because we're going to actually go deeper than I usually go in these passages. So the first part we're going to look at is basically the servant's preparation. Right? This is a story about a master coming home and how the servants react to him. And then the master's grace. Or you could say the master's service because they're one and the same thing. So the servant's preparation and the master's grace. In order to understand the whole 
parable, you need to understand some context of the Roman world in which Jesus found himself, because there's really only two players in this parable. And so let's look first, just a little bit of context, and notice, um, let me read to you the verses. He says, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him, that once he comes and knocks, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So basically, in the, in the Roman world, there was a, there was a really uh, tight black and white hierarchy. At the very top of the totem pole, there was the master, and the master had all the rights. He could do anything he wanted to whomever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and no one would say anything. I mean, he was functionally like a god to those in his household. And when I'm talking about households, I'm talking about relatively big households, you know, maybe they had some, some crops and things like that, and he was a businessman, but he was basically the man. And then next on the, the order of hierarchy would be, of course, his wife and his children. And after that, there, he would have a house steward, and the house steward would, func- would be like the CFO of his house. And after the CFO, he would have, he'd basically have a foreman over the different areas, maybe foreman over crops and foreman over livestock and things like that. And so he'd have all these people out there. And then he'd have hired staff. And then he might have day laborers. Remember, there's, all these people, by the way, are found in different stories in the New Testament. Remember the parable of the day laborers where people are hired and then people are hired at the end of the day and they get paid the same and the other day laborers are upset about it? That's this right here. And at the very bottom of the totem pole, at the very, very bottom, are slaves. In our text today, it says servants, but the word there is actually bond slaves. And bond slaves in the Roman world had absolutely no rights. You did not have the right to marry. You didn't have the right to talk back to your master. You could not do anything except what you were told. You were a slave. You were at the bottom, bottom, bottom of the totem pole. What makes this passage so unique is you have the master interacting with the slaves. All the middlemen are taken out. It's master and slaves. Those are the only two parties in this parable. So once you understand that, if you understand the master was everything and the slave was nothing, the master had all the rights, all the property, owned everything, had all the power, and the slave actually had nothing, didn't own anything, had no power, no rights, that makes the parable a little bit bigger, I think. And then there are several words. I don't often do this. I want you to, your Bibles are trustworthy. But this parable, I think, is one of those ones where people historically have read it only as the second coming of Jesus. But there are a few words that you could translate it one way or the other way. And I'm going to offer you some alternate translations today. I'm going to give you my reasons why I think those I'm offering you an alternate translation. So look at the first couple lines there. It says in verse 35, we'll start there. It says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Okay. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. At least in my Bible, even there's a footnote to what uh, verse 35 says. Greek says, let your loins stay girded. That's literally what it says. Let your loins stay girded. What does it mean to gird your loins? Right? We hear that and, you know, gird your loins. You know, what does that mean? Well, if you notice the picture of the guy there, he, almost everyone wore just robes. And if you were going to do anything that required action, if you are going to do anything that would get dirty, if you are going to fight, if you are going to go into battle, you had to gird your loins. I'm pretty proud of this. Watch the guy because you're only going to see it once. What does it mean to gird your loins? You basically hike up your, your robe, you pull it back and got it, and you're ready to go. Okay? 
In other words, everyone wore robes, and you basically hiked it up, and you pulled it out and got all the fabric, and then you pulled it back under your legs and put it around your waist and either tied it or put a belt around your waist. And you could tell it's a little bit different than just wearing the robe. It's a lot more, you're a lot more exposed, but you have a lot more ability to do stuff. And what he tells the, the, the slaves, the master says, is let your loins stay girded. In other words, I'm not going to be here, but while I am not here, you need to stay in this, this pose of action. In other words, don't wait, and then when I come, you, you know, then tie yourself up. In other words, when I, I'm going to be away for a while. When I come back, I want you to stay girded. And the other thing he tells them is to keep your lamps burning. No change there. And basically, he's telling them that I'm going to come back, and I'm going to come back in such a way, I want to be able to see my way back here to the house. In other words, keep, keep the lamps on during the night. That would require work, by the way. You didn't just turn a light on and go to bed, and then, you know, dad wakes up in the morning and complains about who left the lights on all night. You had to stay up all night with that lamp in order to keep it lit. You had to make sure the oil was in the lamp. You had to make sure the fire didn't go out. And so he says to them, to be ready, be ready for action, to be girded, but also to keep the lamps burning, because I will return. And it's, it's even bigger than that. So the next thing you see is I'm going to notice the next line. He says, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so that they may open the door for him at once when he comes and knocks. Okay, I want to uh, propose to you that a better translation of waiting is expecting. Be like men who are expecting their master to come home. You realize the difference between waiting and expecting, right? Like waiting is passive. You're just waiting. You know, you know oh, I'm waiting for dad to come home. I'll you know, play Angry Birds on my iPhone. I'm, I can do what I'm just waiting. What do you know, waiting? But when you're expecting your dad to come home or you're expecting visitors to come over, what do you do? You like keep looking out the window, don't you? I do. If you're a little kid, you're peeking over. You're, you're, when you're expectant, you're actually proactive. You're looking for that thing that's coming. I mean, if you think about it, with, with, how many of you have ever, you know, you, you see a woman who's pregnant you don't walk up to her and say, wow, how long have you got to wait on that thing? <laughs> what do you say? When are you expecting? Because a woman who's pregnant is not waiting for anything. She is expecting. She can't wait for that day, that minute for the baby to be birthed. You see, there's a difference between expecting and waiting. And I think that's what the master wants here. He doesn't say just wait around, do nothing. He said be, you'd be expecting the master for when he comes home. And it says for the master to come home from the wedding feast. And, and again, I'm going to propose to you a different translation for to come home. And it's, it's equally as good as to withdraw from the wedding feast. As I read this, the wedding feast is actually at the home of their master. In other words, Roman, if you had money in Rome, you would, have had, you would have had a big villa, and there could have been a wedding feast at one side, and acres away there could have been servants' quarters. And the, the language here, he says, uh, be expecting the master for when he withdraws from the wedding feast. In other words, he's going to sneak away from the wedding feast. And when he sneaks away from the wedding feast, what does he do? It says, so that he may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. The reason that I think it's the master, the master actually owns the house, and as opposed to him being away at some friend's house, and he might come home at any time, so stay awake, is because he knocks. How many of you, when you come home at night, knock on the front door? You don't. 
Or if you knock on the door, what do you do? You call out. Knock, knock, honey, I'm home. You say something, right? This is one of the only places where, where when someone comes to someone's house and knocks, and they don't, he doesn't call out. So the question you have to ask is, on one hand, why is he knocking? Because he owns the place. And on the other hand, why doesn't he at least call out? Remember, we looked at the parable the, the, about prayer of, of a couple months ago, and the, the, the person who comes at midnight who asks his friend for bread, he calls out. And if you own the house, you only strangers knock on the front door. So why would the master knock on his own door instead of calling out? And I think the answer lies in the fact is that he did sneak away from the wedding banquet. In other words, if he called out, people at the wedding banquet might realize that he is gone. And he's supposed to be hosting the whole thing. And yet something about his servants is so important and something about this event that's going to take place with his servants is so important that he would rather sneak away and spend time with his servants. And so when he knocks, be ready to open the door. When you hear the knock at midnight, that's going to be me. And so he tells them that. So the servant's preparation is to do what? It's to expect their master. And that's it. Because you notice what it says there. This is a really important point. He says in verse 37, he says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Now, I want you to notice first what this passage is not saying. It does not say, if the master comes and finds them awake, he will bless them. You see, it doesn't say that, right? Can we agree with that? He doesn't say, if then. He says, blessed are those servants who, when the master finds them awake... In other words, what is being said here is just this, that the way they act is an expression of who they are. It's not a reward for what they've done. In other words, the reason that they're anxious and expecting and the reason that they are willing to stay up and be prepared and to answer the door when it knocks is because of who they are. They are servants of this particular master. And apparently, being in the household of this particular master is a blessing. It wouldn't be a blessing in most master's houses, but in this master's house, it is a blessing. And as we go to the next point, you realize why it is a blessing. In other words, the, the way they act follows who they are, not vice versa. This is all about being someone not doing. Did you notice it didn't say, blessed are the servants who, when the master gets there, they've done everything right. Blessed are those servants who cleaned up everything spick and span. Blessed are the servants who did. It says, blessed are those servants who are awake. They didn't do anything, but they were waiting for him. They were longing for him. They were expecting him to come. And when they, he shows up, what happens is unheard of, honestly. First thing I want you to notice is this. Notice verse 37 in the middle. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Okay, the word truly there is amen. If you have a King James Version, it usually says that, amen, amen. Well, the way Luke uses the word amen is whenever Luke starts out a sentence out of Jesus' mouth with truly, every time what comes next is something that's unbelievable, or something that's astounding, or something that's mind-blowing. So when, Luke, when Jesus says, truly, I tell you this, you know what's coming next is, is, is upside down and backwards from whatever it is you expected. And that's exactly what happens. Because what, what happens here, remember the two characters we had, and it says this, it says, um, the master will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. 
If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So notice how in, in this one line, in this one parable, the whole world has been turned upside down. At least the Roman world. If you were talking to a Roman citizen then and said, hey, let me tell you about this story about a master who goes and serves his slaves, he would say to you something like, yeah, right, and I suppose the next thing you're going to tell me is that God became a man to serve sinners. That's how outrageous it would have been to them. But notice what the master does. The master literally girds himself. I mean, this might sound crazy. That might have been the only time those servants had ever seen the master's legs. Because masters don't hike up their robes and gird themselves to serve anybody. Everyone serves them. But it says that the master serves them, and he will have them recline. Now, that's the language of a meal. In other words, he will have them recline, that he's getting ready to serve them a meal, which would have included him washing them up, which would have been including him serving the meal, which would have been including him making everything. Now, the one interesting question is, where did he get the food from here? Think about that. You don't get the idea that the master is rushing around trying to put something together because all of a sudden company is there. Or suddenly he wants to do something nice for the servants. It's almost as if he brought food with him from the banquet. In other words, the master leaves the banquet. He leaves the party. And leaving the party, he takes with him some of the food, this, this party food, and he goes to give it to the servants to serve them. And then that's the last thing it says. It says he will come and he will serve them. Now think about it. Can you think of any other uh, place where a master would leave a party and bring his servants and serve them? Or let me start in a different place. If you were these servants, if you were the slaves in this master's household, <coughs> let's assume this is the first time that ever happened. What would your life be like from that point on? What would your view of your master be from that point on? In other words, would not every day be brighter after that? If you realized on one hand you were a slave and you had no rights and no authority and no property or anything, and yet the master of the house who had all rights, all authority, all property, he actually came and served you. Would that not change your view of the world? That's grace. When people who are completely and utterly undeserving are served by someone who is completely and utterly deserving. You see, before you answer the questions about those servants, what would their lives be like? Let me, let me remind you of something else. Remember this parable Jesus is talking about himself. That becomes clear a, little, a few verses later. So what's the point here? Is that someday Jesus will do for us what the master is doing for the servants. In other words, someday at the end of all time, Jesus will serve us. And that sounds crazy, does it not? Unless, yeah, I was thinking this week, remember we, I preached through Revelation a few years back. In Revelation 19, all the, all the people of God, all of those who have trusted God for all time in Jesus will sit down to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You ever ask yourself this question? Who serves dinner? If all of us, if everyone who trusts him are sitting at the table, who actually is going to be serving dinner? I think it's Jesus himself. He's the only one left. So even at the end of time, right, we're, we have this mindset, Jesus is coming, look busy, when what is actually in store for those who have trusted him is him serving you in, in the future at the great consummation of all things, at this great wedding feast. 
Would that change the way you, you live if you really believe that? Well, not only will he serve us in the future, but he has done it for us already in the past. He served us. I mean, uh, Cyril of Alexandria uh, said this, that basically what happens in heaven all the time are parties. That's not the word he used. He says festivals. Oh, you know, God is a festive God, and in heaven at any given time, it is, there's always a festival going on. Basically, the heaven is his great big wedding banquet party, and Jesus left the party. He snuck away and showed up as an out-of-work carpenter for those who would be ready. And he served us. He served us in the past. Why? He served us by living the life we should have lived. He served us by dying the death we should have died. He served us by raising from the dead and now continually interceding with God for us. He served us in the past. Now, the great news of the gospel is not only that Jesus will serve us in the future and that Jesus has served us in the past, but that Jesus serves us right now. He is doing it right now. It's not just he's interceding for the Father, but if you want a picture of what it means for Jesus to serve us right now, just look at this tables in front of me. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6? People came to him looking for bread, and he said, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they said, we want some of that other bread. And remember what Jesus said to them? I am the bread. I am the bread who came from where? Who came down from heaven. Take and eat. Whoever feeds upon me will never be hungry again. And by his spirit, even now, Jesus serves us. He offers us his body and his blood in order that we might be strengthened in our faith, in order that we might actually be renewed in our faith and, and, and helped in our faith. That's what is happening here all the time, that Jesus has served us in the future. He has served us in the past, and he's serving us right now. And the question is, will you let him? And that almost sounds like a rhetorical question, but it's not. It's really hard to be served. Remember what Peter, happened to Peter? I love the, the John chapter 13. Jesus has done something crazy, right? He has girded himself, and he seeks to wash the feet of the disciples because he is getting ready to serve them dinner. And they get to Peter, and remember what Peter says in verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, well, if I, don't, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. <laughs> in other words, Peter says, you, you can't do it. Because imagine the servants in the parable. It, might, it must have seemed awkward if they didn't know it was coming. That what's the master doing here? I've never seen him hike up his robe. I've never seen him do this stuff. So on one hand, it had to be awkward. But on the other hand, the question is, will they let him? I imagine some of the servants in the parable are like, oh, no, 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 master. You can't do this. You can't help me. You can't serve me. It's my job to do, serve you. And what the gospel says is that you cannot do enough service to merit your favor, God's favor. You can't do enough service to make him pleased with you. That all you can do is experience his grace and live out of that. And the question is, are you able to be served? What keeps us from, from letting God serve us? There's a lot of things. I think pride. A lot of us are very prideful. I don't need, I don't need help with that. Right? I mean, you, maybe you're, you're running short on cash and people say, you know, can I help you out, Tommy? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, it happens all the time. That's, I think I've told you, when I, when I visit people in the hospital and homes, I rarely call. 
I know it's protocol to call first and say, hey, Joe, I'm coming over to see you tonight, and I know you're not doing well, because you know what Joe always says? Oh, we're okay. We don't need anything. But when you get there, they really do. It's pride that keeps us from, being, from letting people serve us. It's not only pride. Some of it's fear. Some of it is just selfishness. I mean, you know, a life-changing event for me, it, it genuinely was, was a couple of years ago when we did the TED Trip marriage conference. Remember that? And in, that, in the, the, one of the talks he was talking about, it, he basically said this. He said, some of you are so selfish that you can't even let people serve you. You're too selfish to even be served. And when he said that and he told the story, I just started weeping. And as soon as my wife showed up for the dinner a little bit late, I was crying. I said, I'm so sorry. Just that day, she had called me and said, hey, I'm at the store getting stuff for your dinner. Would you like me to bring home some macaroni salad? I wasn't even listening. I hate macaroni salad. I like pasta salad. And I think that's what I thought. She said, I said, sure, bring it home. And she put it out in front of me for dinner. And I just said, I can't believe you had served me this. You know I hate it. We've been married forever. And you get... In other words, Tommy, you're a horrible, rotten human being. You cannot even let someone love you. You can't even let someone serve you. That's how selfish you are. And what the gospel says, unless you are willing to let Jesus serve you, you have no part in me. Unless you are willing to say, Jesus, I realize that there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. In fact, I'm going to let you serve me. You served me at the cross. You will serve me in the future. I'm going to let you serve me right now. Ask yourself that question. Are you willing to let Jesus serve you? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray that, that we would, um, our eyes would be open and that it, it, as a church, we're great at serving other people. We have always been great at serving other people, serving the community, serving those in need. I pray that you would make us better at being served, better at, at putting down our pride and putting down our selfishness and putting down these things and letting Jesus serve us and that we might live in this thing called grace. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen and amen.